welcome to episode 1600 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello. What do you make of the stat that's been going around that goes around to some extent every postseason about the record of teams that out-homer other teams? Because right now, as we record on Wednesday morning, teams that have out-homered other teams are 16-0 undefeated in these playoffs. And I have very mixed feelings about this stat. I, I did not find it to be very revealing, which I guess is the point. But to me, it's like almost self-evident it's like almost tautological like the team that hits more homers wins more games well of course because when you hit home runs you score runs it's like one degree removed from the team that has outscored the other team is undefeated in these playoffs I know it's not exactly the same but I almost think of it this way and also there's never any baseline or context it's not like well in the postseason teams that out home or other teams do better like I, I never know is this suggesting that this is the way you win in the postseason because teams win even more when they out homer their opponents than they do in the regular season like regular season teams usually win when they out homer their opponents too so I don't really know what to make of this stat so I've been playing this game lately called Farkle, I just learned, uh, which is a dice game that my sister's family plays. And it's a good game for uh, if you're kind of doing like a quarantining because you can play it from like opposite sides of the room if you have your own set of dice. Anyway, so there's no like shared game board. Farkle. All right. So the thing about Farkle is that you play multiple rounds and your strategy is going to change tremendously depending on whether you're ahead or you're behind, right? Uh This is going to be a very long metaphor, (laughs) analogy, I should say. And so if you get ahead by, you know, a little after a couple of rounds, then the other person has to start being a little bit more uh, risk-taking. And so it ends up that the game might be not close at all because you're just continually getting zero points in pursuit of a big score while the other person can kind of play it safe. All right, so... There's a stat that a broadcaster that I used to hear a lot would talk about a lot, which was the first run that a team scores. The team that scores first wins X percent of the time. And this, I used to kind of get a little bit driven crazy by by this stat coming up almost every time that the home team or that the, you know, that the host team scored first, I would hear that this this stat that the team that scores first wins X period. And the implication by bringing, like we already know that it's better to be ahead than behind. So you're not, (laughs) you're not revealing any deep truth. Like, of course you want to score first, Mm -hmm. but the implication I think is somehow that the first run is more important than you would, than than just a random run that by getting ahead first, then maybe there's a psychological edge or maybe it changes the gameplay in such a way that, you know, like you're more likely to be able to execute your vision of how the game is going to go with the starting pitcher going X innings and then the reliever, the good relievers coming in and all that. And so uh, the implication is that the first run is better mm-hmm. than, say, the second run. By the way, it also sounds really impressive because the team that scores first wins something like 70% of the time, which sounds yeah. like a lot, but that's because to score one, you usually have leftover runners on at the time, or you score more than once at, at that instant. So if you score with a three-run homer, it's not the first run that makes you a 70% favorite. It's the second and the third run really do a lot of that work too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not really just one run that's scoring. Anyway, the thing about the home run thing is that you're right. It, it doesn't I mean, home runs are obviously runs. They're good. They're they're really good. Like a team that scores, that hits more home runs, almost by definition scored more runs on home runs. And the team that scored more runs uh, in one part of the game has a big head start. Mm-hmm. So the question is, does home runs have some symbolic value or do home runs correlate to some other aspect of, of the gameplay that would make them especially important? Right. Um, And I think that one of the reasons that you hear this stat brought up nowadays is that it's a backlash to the uh, to the opposite point of view, which is that a team that depends on home runs is somehow failing and is is prone to droughts or is one dimensional or is only only has the the glamour muscles but doesn't actually mm-hmm. do what it takes to win and so there was this like long i think long push to denigrate home run hitting teams and so now you have the backlash where it's like well you guys duh home runs are good the team that yeah. hits the most home runs wins more often um and so for all of those reasons i i think that you're basically right that 
It doesn't tell you anything particularly notable. Of course, home runs are, are, it's better to hit more home runs than your opponent. And it's all in this sort of slush of abstract notions so that it's not even really that specific about what it's saying to us. It's it's like it, it's not really giving you any like degree of specificity about like what what is actually happening. It's just very blunt and says that the team that scores more home runs is likely to win. And then from that, you're going to draw your own kind of moral or lesson from it but it's it is all i would say it is all kind of pointless i will though say that that it's i'm glad you brought this particular point up because yesterday during the rays radio broadcast they had tape from an an interview a pregame interview with the rays pitching coach uh, kyle snyder and he was asked is it more important for the pitching staff to limit walks or limit home runs and you know, the obvious answer is it's more important to limit home runs. Like, that's pretty intuitive. All home runs score, some walks score. And therefore, it is just literally more important to limit home runs than walks. Unless you think that there's something about pitching, like a walk-heavy pitching approach has other downsides to it that mm-hmm. you're constantly behind in the count or a home run tolerant pitching approach has other upsides to it like you're attacking hitters or whatever and so like I don't think Kyle Snyder was literally answering the the literal question because then he would say it's more important to limit the home runs instead he's answering some vague question about whether it's better to attack hitters or not and the inexactness with which this question is attempting to describe baseball strategy feels just kind of like like dull and disappointing i guess and so that's mm-hmm. why where i come down on this out homering your opponent is worth whatever thing it just it it's doesn't it, it just feels like it's kind of like a an overly simplistic attempt to answer something fundamental in baseball that we struggle with. And it's not getting there. It's not getting anywhere near there. It's just sort of throwing this bomb into the the mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. It's kind of a corrective to the opposite narrative, which you still hear a lot about how small ball is more important, particularly in the postseason or home runs or rally killers or whatever. I don't know if this is more common in baseball or whether there are equivalents in other sports like the people in football say you don't want to score touchdowns like you got to get those uh, safeties got to get those field goals that's how you win in the playoffs like I don't know if there's a, a perfect equivalent maybe in basketball people were resistant to three pointers over jump shots or, or whatever but it just seems like in baseball you hear this even more and maybe it's mostly an aesthetic preference that people just enjoy teams that put the ball in play more Or maybe, as we probably talked about before, it can be more frustrating if you have an all-or-nothing team, if you are sort of sitting back and waiting for the home run and the home run doesn't come, and meanwhile you're not putting anyone on base, or if you do, maybe you're striking out with runners in scoring position, you look more futile, I guess, if you are just not even putting anyone on base, even if you're, you're more capable of scoring a bunch of runs when you do finally break through, so... There just seems to be some resistance to it, and that's why many people, including me at at times, we've written articles about, well, is it actually better to be a contact-oriented offense in the playoffs or a less home-run-reliant lineup in the playoffs? And over and over, those studies have suggested that it just doesn't really matter that much, that maybe there is some advantage to contact hitting when you're facing particularly hard-throwing pitchers, as you tend to do in the postseason. I saw Darren Willman tweet that the average fastball velocity was 96-something in the games on Tuesday. But then there's also the advantage of if you can score with one swing, you don't have to string together a bunch of hits against good postseason pitchers and defenses, which is tough. So really, it it just doesn't matter all that much. Like home run reliant offenses and non-home run reliant offenses decline by more or less the, the same percentage when you get to the postseason and pitching and defense is better and the weather is colder and everything else. So 
We just really look for something that points to a way to win in the playoffs, and it's just really hard to identify a a concrete way to win in the playoffs. So because there are people saying the opposite, that you don't want to hit home runs, which just seems obviously wrong, and yet people persist in saying that like on national broadcasts. So I guess you have to have this stat just to kind of correct the record and say, well, no, actually, when you hit home runs, it's good, which doesn't even seem like something we should have to point out at this point and also when you allow home runs it's bad which is now <laughs> yeah. this is this is sort of like a second front the kyle schneider is introducing the not only do you not want to have an offense built on home runs but as a pitching staff you do want to allow home runs he's not actually saying that <laughs> but it's now going kind of both ways that well yeah, I, yeah. but again yeah kyle okay he was just answering your question in a yeah. way that seemed like people would respond to. <laughs> and and maybe it seems more relevant now just because offense as a whole is more home run reliant. And so teams tend to score a higher percentage of their runs on homers. And I think Rachel McDaniel pointed out that 20 of the 24 runs scored thus far in the Yankees race series have been scored on the home run. So I suppose that this would be maybe more closely correlated to success in this era when all you do is hit home runs and that's like the only way to score sometimes these days. I, I guess it might be more relevant then, but it, it just still seems like something that we should not continue to have to, to keep saying, but I, I guess we will anyway. So we haven't talked much about the division series action thus far, so I, I guess we can catch up on a couple things of note that have happened over the past few days before the next slate of games begins. So maybe the the thing we could start with, which is sort of the dominating the, the conversation at the moment, is the Yankees Rays managing and Aaron Boone's or the Yankees attempt to outraise the Rays with kind of a, a quasi Curly Ogden maneuver where they started Davey Garcia and pulled him after an inning and, and put in J-Hap. And This is kind of an example to an extent of what I was talking about and writing about last week, which is that I think we make too much of managerial moves in the postseason. And I get why it happens, right? Because managers have all the time in the world to think about what they want to do. And they decide this is the best decision. And if you think that decision is a mistake, it seems like an unforced error. Whereas how mad can you get at a pitcher for giving up a home run or a hitter for swinging through a ball or a fielder for whiffing on something? They're not trying to do that. They didn't do it on purpose. It's a failure of coordination. So it's easier to forgive if not forget. And we can tell ourselves that we would have made a different and smarter decision in that situation, whereas we can't convincingly tell ourselves that we would have hit that breaking ball or we would have struck that guy out. But I still think we make too much of managerial moves for a few reasons. One, because managers don't make decisions on their own. So obviously this decision, Boone gets blamed for it or could have been credited for it in a a different universe where it worked out. But he's just the the public face. That's almost like one of the, the points of having a manager is to put someone out there and say, this person is pressing the button. So blame him or or give him the credit, whereas really it's kind of a collective effort of the GM in the front office and the coaches and the analytics people and and everyone else. So Boone is sort of the the point person and ultimately has the, the responsibility for everything that happens. And then B, there's just so much we don't know, whether it's like sophisticated matchup stats that we don't really have access to and and good batter versus pitcher projections or information on the conditions of the players involved. Maybe they're hiding an injury or something. You never know. And then the real reason, I think, is that no manager really swings the game that much in terms of like expected winning percentage. Obviously, managers have an impact in that they choose who is in the game at any particular time, and then those players either play well or don't play well, and so you can trace it back to the manager for putting in this pitcher or not putting in this pitcher and say it's because of him, but really if you were just to look at the probabilities of what was expected to happen, there wouldn't be that big a swing between whatever, starting Hap instead of Garcia, or starting Garcia instead of Hap and letting him go longer, or you know, leaving Garcia in longer, whatever it is. So, I, th- Can I interrupt real yeah, quick? Because sure. this was one of those things where I wasn't, after the Yankees lost, I saw that there was like a lot of people upset with Boone. Yeah. But I, it wasn't clear to me what exactly, like, because I wasn't like totally locked into the conversation. Was yeah. there a uniform 
demand for what he should have done. Like, I know that there was a sense that, like, well, Boone bungled that. But was everybody, like, pretty much united behind the idea that he should have done X instead? Or was it just, well, they lost, so something must have gone wrong? Yeah, I think it was more the latter because I saw people suggesting different courses. Like, I saw some people were upset that he didn't just start Tanaka because Tanaka is maybe their second best starting pitcher and maybe you just start him in game two. I don't think that matters at all because it's a a best of five series with no off days. So Tanaka's only going to start once. So you start him in game two or start him in game three, it, it really doesn't make much of a difference, I don't think. And there might even be an advantage to holding him, which might be why the Yankees did it, because you figure you might get a, a longer outing of him. And so you can then sort of stagger your pitchers. You expect to go deeper into games to lighten the workload on your relievers. So mm-hmm. that was yeah. one thing I saw. Other things I saw was just, well, Garcia's just better, you know, just let him keep pitching because he's just better than Hap. He could still come back in game four if they want him to, so he's not burned for the series. And also, I don't think you could have used some obvious opener in this situation or the Rays wouldn't have fallen for it, right? And then you couldn't have pulled the switch and gotten the platoon advantage. And then I think maybe the most common criticism and maybe the fairest criticism is that Hap just didn't want to do this. And so if it's clear that you have a a veteran pitcher who doesn't want to be used this way, that you shouldn't try to force him into that role. So we can talk about that. I I also saw some criticism that was just like, well, this is too cute or it's overthinking it or it's trying to get too clever. I don't think that's really a, a valid criticism because like people have pulled the same maneuver in the past and we celebrate it for being clever right so if it's clever then that's good i don't know if it can be too clever it it either makes sense or or it doesn't right so i don't know that it was like oh we're gonna do this just for the sake of being creative or experimental or out of the box or something so that just seems like almost a i don't know anti-intellectual or like pro-orthodoxy type reaction i saw some media member refer to the calculus crew in the yankees front office and it reminded me of us being called the corduroy crew with the stompers but the point that hap wasn't comfortable with this and you know he he made it clear i think in his post game comments and and said he expressed his preference that he wanted to start and so if he wanted to start then maybe you just say whatever marginal advantage you get here from starting Garcia and then pulling this handedness switch so that in theory you get the platoon advantage against the Rays lineup, which is lefty heavy, although they didn't go with their like nine left-handed hitters lineup. I think it was only five and Garcia had gotten past a lot of those. So I don't know that the potential advantage was that great, but the idea is just that, well, Even though Hap said once he was in the game, he went about his business the way he would have in any other time and he tried just as hard and, you know, whether he wanted to be in that position or not didn't really affect him. Perhaps it still did. Perhaps there was some part of him that had reservations about it or was miffed about it or didn't prepare the way he would have otherwise. And so just why mess with it? You know, there isn't that much of a difference between Hap and Garcia. Just start one or start both of them in different games and and don't worry about trying to get the platoon advantage because it's just not worth putting a, a player in a position where he wasn't comfortable with it. Yeah, it's really hard to know how seriously to take Hap's feelings after the game just because, you know, he had a tough night and... Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you know how we are humans. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a lot. It's a lot harder to, you know, to be happy when you had a bad night. And right. so that's not necessarily to say that he wasn't in a position to succeed or not. I mean, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't have uh, that much to say. I, I think that, you know, this does go back to what you were saying and what we talked about last week about not overreacting to to one game in a division series just because you know they they do have they are going to lose some games not every game is not a must win and this was a game that the Yankees were probably going to lose they were one way or another going to be outmatched Jay Happ is mm-hmm. not as good as Tyler Glasnow yeah and even if you know he's a starter and he's got his whole routine I mean he's he's a worse pitcher and mm-hmm. so they they tried something with a weaker pitching plan yesterday and mm-hmm. um and it didn't work I, I don't I, it wasn't I don't think destined to fail or anything like that yeah. I think I don't know I mean I I you're right that there is uh, both a certain amount of uh, you know respect that 
that management should show to the players uh, when they're instituting these plans, partly out of out of you know human kindness, but also because I think we do generally believe that players do better when they're comfortable and when they have some idea of what to expect. And anytime something like this fails and you have the players saying after the fact that they didn't really know what was going on, it really does point to like that should be the easy part that it should be the easy thing to as the manager to make sure that everybody knows what's happening on the other hand there is a little bit of a tricky thing where if if boone and and the yankees decided this was how they wanted to do it and then they go to jay hap before the game and hap goes absolutely not i can't pitch that way well does then you're really in a bad position because this was the plan that you wanted. You know that Hap's going to do it. You know he's going to go out there and probably not be affected too much. But then if you ask him, like, "Hey, will you, I mean, what are you? I I don't know. Like, you you kind of just want everybody to be in the mindset that they're going to be prepared to help when they're called right. upon. Yeah, and you don't want to make it a thing where like every player has veto power over the yeah, yeah. the strategic decision. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of it's a t- I guess I just said that should be the easy part but that's not really the easy part is it <laughs> you can blame both of them like I guess you could blame Boone or, or whomever on the Yankees for not working around whatever hang-up Hap has about this you could also blame Hap for having this hang-up in the first place because like it's 2020 and it's yeah. the postseason and there are no off days and it's just like pitch whenever they ask you to pitch i mean look at the rays like the rays have everyone in that pen saves games at some point or like you know it's openers it's starters i mean hardly anyone has roles or i guess their rotation is a little more set than it has been in recent years when it wasn't as healthy but basically it's almost like positionless baseball at this point and so if you're jay happ and you're not Garrett Cole like yeah you just have to be ready to pitch whatever like I don't know that you should you know Jay Happ who last year made three appearances in the postseason for the Yankees all in relief uh-huh. <laughs> yeah so he's done it before and and he was warned it wasn't like they said you're starting Jay and, and then suddenly David Garcia was out there and they never told him like he he had some inkling that this was coming even if he wasn't happy about it and Maybe this was something that was just building because Hap has been unhappy about how he has been used, I think, throughout this year. Like he's thought or accused the Yankees of manipulating his usage because of a vesting option, which I think the terms of it are not public. So it's hard to gauge whether that's legitimate or not. But he has been upset about that. And so maybe it's just the the same displeasure that's being expressed here. But yeah, like, you know, I, I think at this point... You just have to be ready to play whatever position or come in whatever inning they ask you to because that's just how baseball works now. And that's kind of what being a team player is at this point, just saying, yeah, I'll do whatever you tell me my role is. I'll come in and try to get guys out. It's more or less the same job whenever you come in. So I think maybe it it wasn't like a brilliant plan. It wasn't maybe a perfect time to do this or, or the expected advantage from doing this wasn't so great maybe that it outweighed whatever discomfort Hap had but like if Garcia had come in and not given up a, a home run to a Rosarena who just never makes an out anymore or if Hap had come in and not given up a couple of home runs in his outing then we might all be saying brilliant by Aaron Boone to do this maneuver instead of, you know, trying to stick with one of these guys who individually are not that great. He made the best of it. He, you know, stole something from the Rays playbook and he beat them at their own game. Like that's probably what people were would be saying about Aaron Boone if both of those guys had shut down the race. So the question is, did they fail to shut down the race because of the way they were handled? Or did they fail to shut down the race because the Rays are pretty good and they're not great and because it was one game? I kind of lean toward the latter. So I don't know. I'm not saying it was a brilliant move or anything, but I'm also not saying fire Aaron Boone or whoever because of this move and the fact that it backfired. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, that outweighed Giancarlo Stanton hitting two more home runs. And as I said on on the Ringer podcast, like those were the two types of Stanton home runs that he hit in that game. He hit the one that 
I guess they're both types that almost no one else hits because he just hits the ball harder than anyone else in the world. But sometimes that manifests itself in an extremely long and majestic home run, like the second one he hit, which was measured at 458 feet or something and seemed a lot longer than that. And then sometimes he hits the one that barely clears the fence, but wouldn't for anyone else because he hits it at like a low launch angle it's basically a line drive that just never has time for gravity to to take it below the fence because he hits it so incredibly hard so he hits home runs on trajectories that no one else hits home runs on and sometimes that can be the the high apex ones that go forever and sometimes it can be the the low liner ones that just keep going Yeah, you said, I only saw one of them, and you said the two types of Stanton home runs, and I immediately knew what the second one must have been. (laughs) Uh Uh, Because you're right, all the other big guys, they all hit the same, like, they're, they're, I, you know, you know me, I don't love home run highlights, because the longest home runs tend to be fly balls to, you know, center field or just off center that like land in this big expanse of seats but like eh, it's like eh, it's not that interesting and mm-hmm. you know it does it really uh, well you know and so that's how the, the the big guys tend to hit their longest home runs kind of more up the middle and the the really nice ones are are either low line drives which stanton hits or down the line yeah. and so so here's a here's a fact here's a fun fact yesterday John Carlos Stanton accounted for three of the four hardest hit balls in in all of play in uh-huh. all you know in all of action. He would have had the hardest, except Chad Pinder very narrowly beat him with one with one of his <laughs> home runs or with Pinder's home run. Mm-hmm. So he almost had the three hardest hit baseballs in all of play yesterday. And doesn't it kind of feel like it's it's almost hard to explain why John Carlos Stanton is is not better than he is. I mean, he's yeah. great. There's nothing wrong with him at all. He is a complete treasure. He has perhaps added more to the aesthetics of baseball during his career than anybody, you know, with maybe the exception of like Andleton Simmons mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe some pitchers who do funny things with pitches. But mm-hmm. uh, he hits the ball like he he just is. He is the Araldus Chapman of, of hitting the ball, right? He's yeah. He dominates the leaderboard in a way that, it is not approachable for anyone else. Like I, I th- this is another one, but Freddie Freeman's hardest hit ball all year is slower than all three balls that that John Car- John Carlos Stanton hit yesterday, just mm-hmm. just in one game. And Freddie Freeman's going to be the MVP. And Freddie Freeman is a power hitter, yeah. and he's going to be the MVP. And Stanton hit three baseballs, and they all went farther than Freddie Freeman is capable of hitting. A baseball. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you would think it's not like Stanton strikes out more than everybody else. It's not like he's like a completely limited athlete otherwise. He is basically a normal baseball player in every way. And then at the most important tool that you can have, which is the ability to hit the ball harder than, you know, other people. He is the greatest there's ever been. Uh-huh. And you would think just like uh, on paper, you would think that that would make you Barry Bonds, that that, mm-hmm. that would make you the greatest hitter of your era, one of the greatest hitters of all time, maybe the greatest hitter of all time. And it's sort of interesting that that isn't yeah. how it works, that, you know, like there's there's only so many feet you need for a home run, I guess, is the key thing. Although in the other home, home run, the one, the, the second type, that you described anybody but him doesn't get a home run no yeah. in the first one anybody anybody in the world who hits the ball on the barrel like he hit the ball on the barrel gets a home run on that mm-hmm. one it it just travels 35 feet shorter yeah. but they all get a home run on that the other one though that's like a single that gets the runner to third <laughs> for anybody else and so you would think it would add up it's sort of surprising yeah. that it doesn't add up isn't it sort of odd it is, yeah. I mean, I guess in, in recent years, obviously, the, it's the, the big health. problem has been yeah. health, yeah. yeah. And and he plays like 20 games a year the last couple of years and still ends up with the hardest hit balls of the season because it's yeah. just, it's not something you need a lot of sample size for. It's like, you know, whenever he hits the ball, it's incredibly hard. So whether he plays 150 games or, or 18, it's still probably going to be harder than anyone else. It's like the Chapman thing, like, you know, he can throw one inning and he'll still throw the hardest pitch of the season probably. So it's partly that, but you're right. Like even when he's been healthy, he's like a, a seven win player instead of, you know, a 10 win player or something which yeah. uh, 
I guess it's he doesn't hit for high averages, so that you would his, think his, though his that hitting the ball, bit. yeah, you'd think hitting yeah. the ball harder than everybody else all the time would would true. would cause higher averages though. Yeah, that's true. He he does strike out more than the league average, yeah, and that's part of it. And and you know he's like a pretty good defender, certainly an adequate defender, but not a, a Gold Glove type guy, and he's not adding much on the bases usually. So. It's it's part of that. Like he's he's not one dimensional, but he clearly has one way better dimension. So it's all of that. But yeah, you're right. Like with his otherworldly skills, you'd you'd think he'd be better. Yeah, his career high OPS plus is 169, and Mike Trout's career low OPS plus is 168. And so <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess I mean the simple answer is just that like a huge percentage of the work that goes on in the batter's box is knowing where the strike zone is precisely. Yeah. And that's what Mike Trout has. And that's what most hitters don't. And Stanton isn't bad in that respect. He's just normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and being otherworldly in the ability to discern a strike uh, turns out to be as valuable, maybe more valuable even than being otherworldly in the ability to uh, slam that sledgehammer down and send it the thing going. What's the thing in the fair? The thing that goes to the, what do you call that? Oh, uh, <laughs> the, the, the hammer. Uh, yeah. The test of strength. I don't what do you, what goes to the bell? It hits the bell. You hit the yeah, hammer, the thing goes enough, up and hits, hits the, bell, the bell. But what hits the bell? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what is that? What do they, what do they put on that, on that toy? <laughs> what do you think that is? If you had to guess, what is it? Just like a little piece of metal <laughs> i don't know and <laughs> does that have the proper name i don't know i don't i don't go to a lot of county fairs i guess <laughs> tell me if it has a name though i'll, I'll look it up you talk about the next game <laughs> okay can i give you a quick stat blast because uh meg and i didn't do one and i have one that is relevant to this game So because Aaron Boone decided to start David Garcia, he gave me a, an opportunity for a step last year, which was inspired by listener Adam, and he wrote in with the subject line, Davey versus Goliath. Very good. He says, I'm watching game two of the ALDS between the Yankees and Rays, where the starting pitcher matchup is the five foot nine Davey Garcia facing off against the six foot eight Tower Glasnow. Has there ever been such a drastic height difference between two starters before, regular season included? Off the top of my head, I can't name many starters listed below 5'9 or above 6'8, so I would think an 11-inch difference is pretty rare. I would also love to know the all-time head-to-head record between the taller tossers and the shorter shovers. So I have an answer here from listener Adam Ott and his handy RetroSheet database, which goes back to, I don't know, at least most of the, the modern era of baseball history. 11 inches is rare, as Adam guessed, but it is not a record. In fact, there have been 36 starting pitcher matchups with a a bigger mismatch in height between that, and the record is 14 inches, both fairly recent. I guess you'd expect it to be fairly recent because pitchers are super tall now. So the biggest mismatches in starting pitcher height in 2016 Alex Meyer, who is 6'9", started against Marcus Stroman, who is listed at 5'7". And then the other 14-inch mismatch, Randy Johnson in 2000 faced Daniel Garibay, who was 5'8", and Johnson, of course, was 6'10". So 14 inches. Then there's some uh, handful of 13-inch ones, Stroman versus Glasnow, actually, in 2018. Stroman versus Fister in 2016. Randy Johnson versus Tom Gordon in 1991. Stubby Overmeyer versus Mike Namick in 1943. That's a, a blast from the past. And Stroman again versus Mike Pelfrey in 2017. So lots of Stroman, lots of Randy Johnson, as one would guess. But according to Adam's database, this was the biggest mismatch in postseason history. So it was anomalous in that respect and historic. And Adam actually did the work to see whether the the tall pitchers tend to beat the short pitchers. And he found that in regular seasons, teams that start a taller starting pitcher are 85,675 
versus 86,323. So the, the shorter pitchers actually win the matchups overall. And in the postseason, teams with taller pitchers are slightly ahead, 688 to 672. So that sort of surprised me because you, you tend to think of taller pitchers as being better. But I guess if you're a short pitcher who makes the majors, it must be because you do things well that compensate for your lack of height. And so it's a pretty even matchup. The preferred term for the part of the uh, strength game, which is uh-huh. a, a, called a high striker. The name of that ah. game is the high striker. Okay. And the word for the thing that shoots up is generally called the puck. And in fact, ah. appears to sometimes be a hockey puck, but it is a puck. Interesting. Okay. By the way, something you said just then in mm-hmm. that stat blast reminded mm-hmm. me that uh, I've been meaning to, to note for a while that uh, the term soft tosser must mm-hmm. be the strangest thing about baseball to people in England. So, yeah, I guess. Like, I might. could imagine that that might be why baseball doesn't catch on, is because we, <laughs> we say soft tosser. And that's yeah too odd of a phrase for <laughs> British slang to handle. Yeah, that could be confusing. People think about, like, you know, wicked googlies or, or whatever cricket terms that sound strange to our American ears, but there must be just as many baseball terms that are equally confounding. So, yeah. okay, well, high striker and puck. All right, I'm prepared for my, my second career as a carny. All right, so let's move on, I suppose, to the other AL game. Probably not quite as much to, to say about the Oakland Houston series. Astros are up 2 nothing, and thus far it's it's been basically an all-Astros show. Astros are hitting a lot, and Astros are pitching pretty well. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, Correa, who is up to his usual postseason heroics, but also or uh, Springer, who's up yeah. to his usual October heroics, but also some of the guys who slumped surprisingly during the regular season, Correa, Altuve, etc. So George Springer... I think he entered the postseason 13th all-time in championship win probability added. Uh-huh. And if I the championship win probability added has migrated to baseball reference. And so I'm, yeah. uh, but there's like a slight inconsistency in, in how they're presented. And so I'm doing a little extrapolating. But if, I, if I'm right about this, he has added about 5% of championship win probability added. This postseason, which would put him probably, uh, uh, let's see, like 11th all-time now, just behind Mickey Mantle. And... So George Springer, I mean, just postseason, like, yeah. I mean, an all-timer, right? Yeah. Just absolutely outrageous an all-timer. What would you guess his slash line is in the postseason? I actually, I know what his OPS is because I looked. Uh, <laughs> I don't know his slash okay. line, but. <laughs> so his his slash line is 281, 364, 579, which is a 943 OPS, which is mm-hmm. good, which is good. Like that's. Yeah. That's good. Uh, his it's better than his you know OPS in the regular season. It's it's clearly consistent with a person who would be very valuable in the postseason. But it's interesting that he's not just. I mean, he's he's a little better in the postseason, and yet I guess what I'm saying is it's not just that he has hit better in the postseason, but even within that framework, he is hit even better during the postseason when it's like the peak postseason moments that Mm -hmm. his championship win probability added far outstrips just his postseason performance he is like he is the he is like super clutch and then among the super clutch he is super clutch yeah (laughs) yeah he's he's picked his spots pretty well and just been also very good overall like he's had series where he's looked bad and and been unsuccessful which shows you the folly of really reading into any player's postseason performance in any given year like you know he didn't hit in the 2017 ALCS sandwich between two great series or he didn't hit well in the the first couple rounds of 2019 and then he turned it on in the World Series so I guess he's concentrated a lot of his production in the moments that mattered most like he has a 1295 career OPS in 14 World Series games and you're probably more likely to remember that than his 385 OPS in wild card games or something so yeah I I think that's part of it I I meant to say that about Stanton too like I can't remember a, a player looking more like like a good player looking more vulnerable and exploitable 
than Stanton looked in the last couple of postseasons. Like it, it really did look like, oh, you can pitch this guy. Like if you just know what his weakness is, you know, he'll he'll chase this pitch or he'll swing through this pitch. And yeah, he's scary if he gets the bat on the ball, but you can find ways around that. And I think there was some conversation about him, you know, being a, a postseason buster on clutch or whatever. And then now he's just, uh, you can't get him out and he hits a home run every game. So it really, it fluctuates from year to year in series to series. It's what we talked about last week, which is that the Astros, it wouldn't really surprise you to see them turn out to be much better than their regular season record. Mm -hmm. And yet, on the other hand, we've only seen two games. And so it wouldn't much surprise you to see this just be two games. Nope. (laughs) Nothing would much surprise us, period. No, not much to say about it, except that at the moment, their stars are hitting. There was a comment that one of the broadcasters made after Stanton homered yesterday, which was, Uh, that the postseason is when you need your best players to be your best players. And Mm. and I I was moved by that. And then I thought, wait a minute, but don't people always talk about how postseason is when like unexpected (laughs) heroes step up? So I guess you can say it either way. They're both good stories. But at the moment, the Astros' best players, the players who've carried them through postseasons and who showed different levels of vulnerability during the regular season this year are smashing, which is what their plan was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also they're getting good work out of guys like Framber Valdez, who's been fantastic in Very both good. of these rounds, whether yeah. as a starter or as a reliever. And they're doing that Astro-style thing where they're using some starters in relief to great effect. But like, I don't know what that team would have done without Framber Valdez this year, because without Urquidy for part of the year, without Verlander for pretty much all of the year, without Osuna, without half the bullpen at times, they really needed innings, and Valdez has just been great, like a, a legitimate Cy Young contender even, and I don't know that anyone really saw that coming because he had all kinds of control problems the last couple seasons, and now he just doesn't, and he's really good. He gets grounders and misses bats and has good control and does everything you want to do, and so I guess the concern for the Astros now is that Zach Greinke is having some arm issues and is not starting Game 3, or Keedy is, so... If that lingers and if they advance and they don't have Grinky in, in the next couple rounds, that would be tough to piece together the innings just because like any shortage of arms is going to be magnified in a, a format where you don't have any off days. So it's it's tough to get by without Grinky, but thus far in this series they have. All right, so... Over on the NL side, I guess the the Atlanta-Miami series, uh, we've only seen one game as we spoke, and it went about as as well as you would have expected for Miami, which is uh, not very well. Atlanta hit. They have a great lineup. They showed it. Marlins bullpen, not good, and was not good in this game. So not so much to to make of that. I, I guess the the storyline of this series now is the the bad blood between Acuna and the Marlins, which has been the case over the past couple of years. So everyone was talking about tensions between the A's and the Astros or the Rays and the Yankees, and now it's the the Acuna Marlins beef that has flared up yet again. So I don't know whether the plunking was intentional or not. It's tough to tell because Acuna has just owned the Marlins to such an extent that whenever he gets hit, it's going to look like a a retaliation for something that he just did because he he always recently did something really good. And that was the case here, too, when he hit a home run and then got hit. And uh, I don't know, the circumstance made it plausible that it was not intentional, but... They seem to think it is, and you know, Acuna tweeted, "They have to hit me because they don't get me out," which is uh, which is true. <laughs> Basically, that has been the case. And Miguel Rojas was upset about Acuna sliding into second and maybe spiking him, or or, or you know, intentionally or not. So. We'll see if that continues. I I hope that uh, one of the best players in the game getting hit by baseballs and possibly defending himself by spiking someone is not like the the big takeaway from this series, but maybe it will be. Hmm. Okay. Uh, So uh, this is where I wanted to mention the thing that's not really about the series at all, but they're playing at Minute Maid Park, right? I have that one, right? Correct? Yes. Okay. So they're playing at Minute Maid Park. And um, the, okay, so here's the policy for Minute Maid Park. Uh, the Astros policy is to close the roof if there's a threat of rain, a threat of excessive wind above 30 miles per hour, a heat index of about 88 degrees for a night game, 
or if the temperature is below 65 degrees. It takes two to three hours to cool the ballpark once the roof is closed, which plays into the decision. Major League Baseball has the final say over the roof during the postseason. Section 11.7 of the MLB Postseason Manual states the commissioner or a designated representative shall determine whether a ballpark's retractable roof shall remain open or closed before and during any postseason game. The roof was closed yesterday. Yesterday, there was no rain, nor threat of rain. The temperature was quite moderate. And the reason that the roof was closed was, do you know why the roof was closed? I don't know. Maybe they said it during. Okay. Apparently, the reason the roof was closed, according to the Marlins broadcast, was that they didn't want to have shadows. And so I'm wondering how you feel about that. I, I mean, baseball is is an outdoor game by by tradition when possible. And I think people generally prefer it as an outdoor game to an indoor game. But of course, it's also a game that can be difficult to play in certain weather conditions, because particularly because of the, the composition of the baseball. And so it makes a lot of sense that you wouldn't play in extreme heat and you can't play in, in rain. But to me, saying that the positioning of the sun during certain hours of the day is an act of nature that is too extreme for us to go outside in, mm. uh, I, I was disappointed. It's a very, very, very small gripe that I have. And I know that there is something tedious as well about the shadows, but I felt like a concession to, <laughs> to, to I don't know, to something. I would have liked the roof to be open. Now, maybe it's just safety. Maybe it's unsafe. I don't know how. I know that we, I know the shadows are overspoken of. Well, mm-hmm. if it's a safety thing, then there would be rules about playing in shadows. Everywhere. Right, yeah. So it can't be a safety thing. I'm taking safety off the board. You can't say it's a safety thing mm-hmm. because otherwise then they would have to admit that they're constantly imperiling their players. <laughs> so it's not a safety thing. In that case, I say shadows um, are not a good enough reason to play indoors. Yeah, I guess I can get on board with that. Yeah, it's, uh, I still don't know how much the shadows matter, and I I want to know because you you hear it without fail in every single October broadcast whenever there's a shadow anywhere. Like if there's a shadow, like uh, you know, on one sliver of the field, you're hearing about it for three innings beforehand. Here come the shadows, and, and then when the shadows there, it's like oh, shadows crossing the plate now. Shadows between the mound and the plate. Up, oh, shadows past the mound. It doesn't matter anymore. It's just constant shadow updates. And Gerald Schiffman wrote about this for BP, I think, a couple of years ago and couldn't confirm that there is an effect. It's hard to disprove, but nothing stood out to him in the numbers. And I believe he is working on a a follow up now, which I eagerly anticipate because this is just like the just most fundamental maxim of postseason broadcasting is that shadows change everything. And if that doesn't turn out to be true, I'll, I'll have to question everything. But you hear it so much and it, it seems intuitive, and so I, I believe it to some extent, but I wonder if it's as big an effect as everyone says it is, or or maybe Gerald would have found the effect more easily. But yeah, I see what you mean. Like it affects both teams equally, and or I guess in theory it could. Maybe in practice it, it doesn't because of just the timing of, of half innings. Maybe it affects one team more, but you can't really predict that probably. And it, I don't see it as a safety issue either, really. So, yeah, I say play on. But uh, it does highlight, like, how much of a difference there does seem to be between these neutral parks when it comes to, like, the ball carrying. Like, I think everyone's used to Texas being a hitter's park and the ball carrying really well there. But that does not seem to be the case at the new Texas park. The ball just does not get hit out there. And so we're seeing balls fly out of, you know, the West Coast parks and day games and heat and and all of that. So people have kind of questioned, is it the ball or is it the environment? And maybe it's both. Who knows at this point? All right, so moving on to, I suppose, our our last series here, Dodgers and Padres. Dodgers took game one and have Clayton Kershaw going against San Diego. So Mike Clevenger tried. He made a, a valiant effort to come back from the issue that has been plaguing him here, and he only made it through 24 pitches, just barely got to the second inning before he had a big velocity drop and had to be removed from the game. And I saw a quote where he said, the discomfort in his arm feels like bones are hitting in the back of my elbow, mm. which uh, sounds very uncomfortable. <laughs> that doesn't sound like something that I would want to experience, particularly if I were trying to throw a baseball. So 
he didn't last that long, and that put the Padres in the position that they've been in thus far in the postseason, which is trying to get through every game using like nine pitchers, which uh, just doesn't seem to be a sustainable strategy. Like they've managed it pretty well, and it worked well enough for them to get through the Cardinals, but. It's a lot harder to to do that over a, a best of five series and also against the Dodgers. So I don't know who's going to give them length, but they they need to get some because it's uh, again they're in that situation now where teams and relievers are not used to pitching every day out of the bullpen anymore, and so now they're being asked to do that, and eventually that's going to fall apart. I'm curious, uh, we, uh, I think, I guess it was a year and a half ago. Was it a year and a half? Did we have Andy? No, Andy didn't do the play, uh, the, the Dodgers season preview this year, or maybe he did, but I wasn't there. A year and a half ago, Andy McCullough did the Dodgers season preview on this show, and we asked if Walker Bueller or Clayton Kershaw would be the postseason starter in October. Like, obviously, mm. this was projecting, like, into the future. What do you think by the end of the year? Who will be seen as the ace? And, and then he said, oh, he didn't think there was any doubt about it. It was Walker Bueller. Like, the, the yeah. torch had been passed. Kershaw was, uh, you know, had shown some signs of decline. And Bueller was, of course, on the on the upswing. And Bueller has been incredible as a pitcher. In fact, and started game one of the wildcard series and started game one of this series. I'm curious, though, to know... Um, whether you think that Kershaw, well, I guess I'm just kind of feeling to see what do you think of Kershaw at this stage Mm -hmm. relative to your kind of the line graph of your confidence in Clayton Kershaw throughout his career. You know, he was, he was phenomenal again this year. He added Mm -hmm. some velocity. He was in some ways as, as good as he ever was in his peak. In some ways he wasn't quite as good. So Mm -hmm. uh, there are some peripherals issues there still, but uh, in some ways as good as he ever was during his peak. And then of course he just had not just probably his best postseason performance, but what could have been, you know, one of the all time great postseason performances ever. And Bueller, of course, is very good. But do you think that, in fact, Kershaw has 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 taken that back? Should Kershaw be seen as the ace of this staff again? And particularly going into to game two, do you feel that way about him? Yeah, I think I do. Just uh, partially because of Bueller's issues with like the the blister or whatever, and and not having been able to go deep into games and and being a little inconsistent lately. So I. I don't feel like he is uh, 100% necessarily, so that's part of it, but also Kershaw has rebounded. He's he's gotten better. Like I, I feel pretty good about him these days, um, which is uh, maybe sort of a silly thing to say because probably you should always have felt pretty good about Clayton Kershaw, but hasn't always worked out that way in the postseason. I, I actually wrote about Kershaw today and, and did sort of a, a deep dive into his season. I, I kind of write like an annual exploration of, of what's going on with Clayton Kershaw. And the last couple of years when I've written versions of that article, the news hasn't been that great because he was losing velocity and, and trying to find ways to work around that with pretty good success because even Kershaw, who's throwing 90 or whatever, still has great command, still has great movement, still has great breaking stuff. So it's not like your typical pitcher who throws that hard. He he still has more than your usual number of ways to, to get people out, however hard he's throwing. But I think there's a pretty big difference when he's throwing 92-93 than when he's throwing 89-90. And there is like a 100 WOBA point gap between like how hard Kershaw gets hit on fastballs above 90 and and below 90. And, you know, is that totally real? I don't know. But if there's anything to it, it matters because he's basically eliminated the the sub 90 mile per hour fastball at this point. Like, you know, he doesn't have his mid 90s velo back, but he also doesn't really have 80s velo anymore. And I think maybe that's an important difference for him. I still don't exactly understand how he's so successful because his approach is pretty predictable, I find. Like, when I look into his numbers, it seems very clear to me what his strategy is and what he's doing. Like, it's extreme. It really stands out. Like, on the first pitch of plate appearances, and I noted this in my piece, and I think Mike Petriello wrote something similar today, too. He throws a ton of fastballs, like more than almost any other starter except Walker Bueller, actually, on the first pitch. So he comes out, he fires fastballs, He throws most of those fastballs in the zone. 
And he steals a lot of strikes on first pitches because batters usually don't swing even on pitches in the strike zone on first pitches. And you'd think against Clayton Kershaw because he does this consistently, you'd think they'd say, hey, go up there swinging, look for a first pitch fastball strike because you're usually going to get one. And yet... That doesn't really happen, and so he gets ahead. He he has a, a first pitch strike rate now that's as high as it's ever been in his career, way higher than the league average. So then he gets ahead, and he goes to like all breaking balls. Like when he's ahead in the count, he throws seventy five percent breaking balls. Even when he's behind in the count after the first pitch, he throws like sixty percent breaking balls. It's way more breaking balls than any other starter throws after the first pitch. And it works like he gets ahead and then he stays ahead. Only a few other pitchers had the advantage in the count as often as Kershaw did this year. And so you'd think that you'd say, hey, guys, go up there swinging and maybe the Padres will. I don't know. But that wasn't really a trait of theirs this season. They were like middle of the pack when it came to swinging at first pitches or first pitches in the strike zone. That is something to be aware of with the Braves, I think, if the Dodgers do get to an NLCS matchup with the Braves because they swing more often than any other team in the majors at first pitches. And so they might ambush Kershaw in a way that would work out for them. But I don't know. Padres haven't really done that this year. Maybe their, their scouting report will say to do that today. But you'd think it would be exploitable, and yet it, it hasn't really been exploited, which maybe is just a testament to how good Kershaw's stuff still is. But Padres were the best team at hitting breaking balls this year, at least in terms of expected weighted on base. So in that sense, it's not a great matchup for him. All right. I would like to to end with an anecdotal observation I made that I developed into a trend with about one hour of baseball observation okay. behind it. Okay. Dustin Palmentier, by the way, pointed out in his sack bunt newsletter that um, you could make the case that where the game the Padres Dodgers game one was decided or or flipped um, was a pair of calls umpire calls fairly early in the game Um, one was a 3-1 pitch to to Trent Grisham with the bases loaded in which Walker Bueller got a borderline call missed his target but mm, just just got it right 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 on the lower inside corner and got the call to even the count, or not to even the count, but to do a full count, and then he he got Grisham to get out of the jam. And then the next inning with um, Fernando Tatis uh, leading off, he had a 3-1 count and threw a pitch uh, that was clearly outside and got the strike, got back mm-hmm. in, the, in the count, and then struck Tatis out. So these are two 3-1 counts, uh, 3-1 pitches. And then about an hour before that, Peter Fairbanks had been in a in a in a terrible jam he came out and had no control whatsoever walked the first batter fell behind to Gleyber Torres was in a 3-1 count and threw a pitch that was way outside way outside mm-hmm. and got the call and so my new theory is that the 3-0 auto strike is starting to become the 3-1 auto strike hmm. that umpires are treating 3-1 pitches the same way they treated 3-0 pitches to some degree which is if it's close they're going to call it and you got to you know as a hitter you should be up here swinging don't don't expect me to help you walk to first base this is all very speculative but i do have a little bit of extremely incomplete and irresponsible statistical <laughs> work that I did in the 40 seconds before we started recording. So, okay. first of all, I will just note that the the pitch to Grisham was 13% likely to be called a strike, according to ESPN Stats and Info, 13%. The pitch to Tatis was 3% likely to be called a strike, and then the pitch to Torres was 0% likely to be called a strike. So within an hour, we had a 0, a 13, and a 3, and they all went to the batters, or I should say to the pitchers. So from 2015 to 2019, if you narrow pitches down to those that are between 10 and 50% likely to be called strikes, and this is based on location, not based on the count. So count irrelevant, all right? Mm -hmm. Location, all that matters. Between 10 and 50% likely to be called strikes based on their location, on all pitches, 26.9% of those pitches are are called strikes, which is about what you'd expect. It's right about in the middle. 26.9% of 
of all pitches in the in those locations are strikes 26.9 in three one counts it's 27.1 which is a very 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 slightly from 26.9 to 27.1 uh, a very small bump and then on 3-0 it jumps up to 28.5 and so that's the auto strike the if it's close mm-hmm. enough the umpire looks for reasons to call it a strike so there's a, there's a clear jump there from you know 0.2 percentage point jump at 3-1 to a 1.4 percentage point jump on 3-0. And so that's the auto strike. You can see it, right? You can recognize mm-hmm. that. So if you look at the percentage of those pitches, the 3-1 pitches that have been called strikes uh, in 2020, broadly, remember 27.1% was our 3-1 standard for the previous five years. This year, it was 296 which is, you know, like a lot more. That's 2.5 percentage points more. That doesn't prove anything. For one thing, these pitches are all in a very, very broadly defined bucket. And so mm-hmm. it could just be that more of these pitches tend to be falling closer to 50 than to 10. Uh, and it could also be that the strike zone seems to be a little bit bigger, which at least according to stats and infos classifications is consistent. If you look at all pitches, there is actually an increase in those pitches being called a strike on all counts in 2020, but it's a smaller jump. So in all counts for those locations, the increase went from 26.9% in the previous five years to 28.3% this year. So that's an increase of 1.4 percentage points. So clearly by these definitions, simply more of those pitches are called strikes generally, but still the increase was much bigger in three one counts. So from 1.4 percentage point increase to a 2.5 percentage point increase on three one. And so Mm -hmm. there's a significant difference. Now we don't have nearly enough. We don't have any useful information in the postseason, but there have been eight taken pitches in this postseason on 3-1 that are in that location, and four of them were called strikes, which uh, is why I noticed it. Yeah, it's like the the adage about how you can't give good teams extra outs, which we have heard invoked many times this postseason, whether it's uh, with the Cronenworth throw to Hosmer the other day against the, the Dodgers, who have such a great lineup already, or whether it's the Semyon error that led to that Astros rally. The same thing sort of applies to giving extra strikes to good teams, although it's the umpires doing it in some cases and and not the the opponents. So there have been some very notable examples when all of Twitter rose up to criticize a certain umpire and when it seemed to affect the game in some ways. It, it does matter <laughs> getting those calls correct. Uh, there are times when it, it really can hurt a team. Yeah, Torres ended up walking anyway, so it did not affect that game in any way. He walked on mm-hmm. the next pitch. All right. Well, we've got to go catch up on the latest Twitter drama. The Astros are all tweeting about a a fake news report or so they say about how they're all privately trying to get back at the teams they consider their tormentors, (laughs) like all the teams that they beat when they were cheating and uh, now are aggrieved at. So everyone hates the Astros even more. I'm kind of looking forward to like an Astros-Yankees ALCS if there is one. I mean, a a Rays ALCS would be fun too, but Astros-Yankees in terms of just the sheer hate generated by everyone in baseball who hates both of those teams but probably hates the Astros more. I don't know. I guess America would have to root for the Yankees in that situation. That would be that would be strange. Anyway, we'll see if we get there. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. Personally, I feel like what the Astros are whining about is not so much that people are mad at them for cheating, but that people are thinking they were only good because of the cheating. And obviously they brought that belief on themselves by being cheaters, but also they're right about being good regardless. So if they're using the fact that people were writing them off to motivate themselves, that makes as much sense to me as any of the real or perceived slights that teams always use to motivate themselves. Like the Marlins wearing their bottom feeders t-shirts. That's what teams do. They pretend that nobody believed in them, even if somebody did. Even if everybody did in some cases. So if you're the Astros and everyone hates you for valid reasons, you might as well channel that into motivation to take those teams down. Like in their minds, probably if they win this year, then no one will be able to say 
say that they only won because of the cheating. Although they did get into the playoffs with a losing record this year, but there were other reasons for that. As we follow the twists and turns of the Astros hatred index, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Again, we'll be doing our usual Patreon-exclusive playoff live streams soon, so sign up now at the $10 a month or higher level to be notified when those are happening. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to get themselves access to some perks and to support the podcast. Jeremy Keyes, Nicholas Ziegler, Robert Beretta, Paul Bellows, and Matt Fogelson. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments coming for me and Meg and Sam via email at podcastatfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. And in case you were wondering, teams that have hit more homers this postseason, now 17-0 after the Braves beat the Marlins on Wednesday. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we'll be back with one more episode later this week. Talk to you then. All the mistakes I made.